Welcome to the T's and C's. Tiso and Gentel. Also known as the Terms and Conditions podcast. Executively produced by Georgia Foriato. Welcome to the USA special of The Election Reflection. We decided to do a four-part series in the build-up to the presidential election. Tiso and I are not experts on presidential elections, so we're bringing on guests who are... Bringing experts in to cover everything from voter suppression, white supremacy, to the Electoral College. Welcome to the final episode of our USA election reflection. Feels quite nerve-wracking to say this is the final episode because that just means the election's getting closer. So we are really, really excited today to be joined by Levi Gaiman, who is based at the University of Liverpool, geographer, sociologist, Fanonian scholar. Can I say that, Levi? My heart would leap if that's if that's how I'm labeled. 100%. And we're going to be talking about some of the themes in your book and how it connects to um, Trump and the election. So the book is called Land, God and Guns, Settler Colonialism and Ma- Masculinity in the American Heartland. Um, and this book, honestly, it's just blown me and Tisa away. Listeners, you'll be really excited to hear after this episode that Levi's going to join us again for a full-length episode to discuss the book in more detail. But for now... Could you give the listeners a bit of an introduction to your book, Levi, and how it connects to what's potentially going to happen next week, but also what happened in 2016? Okay, yeah. I'll start by saying I think the most important thing to realize about the election is that it's taking place in an active colonial context. In this circumstance, it's a white settler state. And so effectively what the U.S. is gearing up for and what everyone's clamoring about is, for me, we're in a competition to see who the next colonial administrator is that's going to preserve a settler future as well as make sure that colonial power is re-entrenched and re-instantiated. There is also, to me, the foundation that undergirds that is one of structural white supremacy. And so we see this manifest itself in a in myriad different ways. And to me, it also there are also direct links to masculinity or what we know is conventional masculinity within that, that particular context. And so I would say that our gender relations that exist in, the, in what's now known as the U.S. have been warped and distorted by colonial worldviews, as well as differing liberal ideas about what it is to be a human or a man or a woman or, or what have you in terms of gender relations. And so what's happening is effectively we're securing the white settler state, but we're doing that oftentimes through political theater in which appeals to me to masculinity become very convincing or reasons why people vote or don't vote for particular candidates. And what's interesting about this election is that you have the brash bravado and hubris and sort of assertions of domination and appeals to alpha male dominance that Donald Trump oftentimes performs or tries to assert. And then contrasting that with Joe Biden, who's trying to frame himself as basically sort of the more calm, stoic, reasoned, rational male thinker. And it's a return to normalcy. However, a return to normalcy in the United States is a return to the ongoing colonial violence that's always defined the United States. It's uh, institutions that are based and rooted in structural white supremacy appointing in their own image. And you get a different variation of what type of masculine, I would say, performance or masculine domination will be, will take the reins of power, so to speak. Now, having said that, in talking about 
structural white supremacy, as well as the implications of what the U.S. election has, repercussions of settler colonial power are felt differently across differentiated groups. And so negatively racialized people will experience settler colonial power differently. Indigenous groups, indigenous nations will experience it differently. I'm from ancestral Osage territory. So in in the book, it's referred to as the American heartland. So different geographies, as well as different groups, have different interests in uh, this election. And I think it's largely come down to one thing that we don't talk about is uh, this being an active colonial context. And then two, the degree to which uh, masculinity factors into how and why we're voting, who has appealed to us, who we see as a good leader, as well as what are we returning to, even if it is an appeal to sort of liberal, rational thought, uh, which is arguably also has ties to colonial worldviews class stratifications, and also, again, I would say explicit racial violence. You know what? That's so sick and so succinct. You can't really add much to that, right? Wow. The caricature is what Trump and Biden represent. Trump kind of symbolizes the caricature of the South and its its naked oppression of people. And Biden, the North, which kind of represents the, the caricature, the more complex manipulation, but still the oppression of minorities and women. In the story of the North and South, North always tries to present itself as the good guys. But they are just complicit in the oppression of all these groups. And this is what you get in these two candidates. It's like voting for one's bad, but the other one is not any better, but it just it seems better. <laughs> so sick. So you grew up in Kansas. In the book, you go back to your home hometown and spend time with people that you went to school with, people that still live in the area to sort of contextualise and talk about masculinity, working classness, whiteness, but also crucially capitalism. And I think one of the things that you do really well is you talk about that complexity of being oppressed whilst also benefiting from white supremacy and you talk about that being a tricky thing to talk about because you, you want to present your, the people that you spent time with as humans of course you do but you also want to present them as people that, that have expressed views of blame because of their circumstance which isn't actually to do with minorities or people that are oppressed it's to do with capitalism it's to do with how they become victim to normative heteropatriarchy and masculinity and I think I just think you do that so well and one of the things that really came through to me, a lot of these people that you spent time with are victims, but also how someone like Trump can present himself as someone that is going to save these people, he's going to save them and he's going to tell them who it is to blame, how they're going to get out of their material deprivation and disadvantage. But one of the things I think is really important as well that you do in the book is that you frame this within a historical analysis. So one of the things that we've tried to be critical about on the podcast is presenting Trump in singularity and not actually a product of liberalism and the Democrats themselves that have sort of enabled someone like him to present himself as a saviour of people that you talk about in the book. I went back to where I was born and raised. Once again, ancestral Osage territory. I was born in rural Kansas. And so I'm a white settler. I'm not indigenous. I'm not a member of the Osage nation, but I grew up on their ancestral territories. And then just growing up, and I mean, it's very kind of personal as well as political text is that when I ended up kind of going to different university courses and making my way through graduate school, these sorts of things, I wasn't even quite for sure what I was going. This stems from my PhD work. I wasn't even for sure what I was going to do for my PhD. And I started telling stories to different people about what life was like back home. And then eventually it was basically like, this is a very complex, um, interesting 
uh, topic. And then in doing that, I've been going back and talking to people on Skype or even in WhatsApp groups now for the past 10 years. So the book's basically a culmination of like 10 years talking to 500 different guys. I focused on my hometown uh, as well as kind of the rural area I was from, but ended up also talking to um, several different guys, typically white working class guys from a lot of different states in what's considered the rural heartland or even the Midwest. So Iowa, Arkansas, Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, uh, Nebraska, and then effectively trying to diagnose a social geography as well as a, a set of cultural relations that is a product of explicit racial violence, a product of white supremacist worldviews, but also recognizing their humanity, as well as, too, a lot of these guys are experiencing mass alienation. And this is the unfortunate reality is that alienation and suffering and hardship and deprivation don't necessarily create noble subjects. And then I think that's sort of the complex reality that we're dealing with. And it's basically like there are myriad ways in which men are being oppressed. They're, however, they're not being oppressed because of their skin color. They're not being oppressed because of their melanin level. And then effectively, to me, the most important question is basically how are we responding to the institutions and structures that are exploiting us or that are uh, making us experience alienation. And to a certain degree, a lot of the guys are being warehoused in a reserve army of labor. And so they're being exploited. They feel maybe some degree of disempowerment. Certainly the partisan politics that carry the day, corporate ruling class, whether it's the Democratic Party or whether it's the Republican Party, don't represent their interest, but then it's effectively what's a diabolical uh, or even effective way for a partisan political corporate ruling class, be it uh, the Democrats or the Republicans, to appeal to voters of this. And it's to conscript them into a sense of unity. And to me, that's the appeal of American nationalism or American exceptionalism. And then two, that is sort of here's the fraught trappings of masculinity it's basically, we were socialized to think that being a man was a very particular thing. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, rugged individualism. You need to be sort of an alpha male, play football, drink beer, sexual conquest, heteropatriarchy, all of these things. And then it's basically, we start to see those things be performed by particular candidates. And it's basically like, well, that's a masculine world at one with itself. So I take a certain degree of comfort. I see someone, I see myself in a reflection of the way that a particular candidate is behaving. And then they're also offering uh, maybe lip service to shaking up the system that's caused their alienation. And then to me, the fallout though, to the negative consequences of what they're facing, exploitation, alienation, is that they're, we're not responding. And when I say we sort of white working class guys, and not to say that they're a monolith either, because you can also find very progressive anti-racist uh, feminist collectives all throughout the, the American heartland uh, who will show up for Black Lives Matter and who will basically say, well, yeah, we need to take to task heteropatriarchy. But I would say the majority of us, um, myself included, get different points as well as probably in the contemporary moment, aren't responding to alienation in necessarily solidaristic uh, or even healthful ways for other people, as well as even for ourselves. So scapegoating migrants, so blaming Black people or saying that there's a particular type of way of, of being a Black person that you need to, respectability politics, 
And then also denying indigenous worldviews, denying the way that indigenous people related to the land. Like we're very, we're very much tied to our private property. And I think that that's sort of a linchpin of one of our freedoms and rights and notions of settler nationalism. And then it's basically so indigenous people's worldviews must be buried and jettisoned. Black people need to behave and act and think in a particular way, i.e. conscripted into white ways of being. And then migrants are taking our jobs. So it's effectively who's going to do something about the exploitation we're feeling. And then a candidate like Trump comes along. I don't think Trump is unique. I mean, he's unique in that he's sound and fury signifying nothing. And he's particularly egregious with his hubris, but it's effectively uh, a product of a historical trajectory of settler colonial power that's appealing to uh, nationalist tendencies, as well as that performs in a particularly appealing type of masculinist way based upon um, binary gendered norms that we have that were forged under heteropatriarchal worldviews. I think one of the interesting things I, I kind of drew from your work is the problem with how white people deal, especially white men, how they deal with this kind of this binary bit by being the normative framework and the sense of alienation that they feel. And what your work kind of draws is what I think's always been missing, a, a level of introspection into whiteness. What I guess what Bell Hooks calls is the critical gaze so the ability to look at oneself with empathy from the other position. This is what I find that white people can sometimes get confused. So sometimes they are they are victim of this system, but they also benefit from that. But it's hard to reconcile that because they're coming from a normative framework. When they approach this alienation, they approach it as an individual rather than as a collective. Whereas black people see it and they can see it that way as a it's an individual thing and a collective thing. White people always individualize this struggle. And that plays into the notion of nationalism, ejecting the other. If, if I get rid of this person, my life will become better. Not seeing themselves as a collective, as a group, as a race. What's quite unnerving is how the far right have hijacked that. They understand this. And they, they talk about this land being stolen and they're quite open about it. And this is to the mainstream detriment because they, they've allowed them to hijack that thing when it should be, should be spoken about in the mainstream. And I think your work teases that out and it allows people to speak about it in a way, in a constructive way. And not a way that browbeats someone saying that you're a racist, you're this, you're that, but it allows them to understand the nuance and how difficult it is to extricate themselves from the system that benefits them, but also to talk about how it also kind of holds them back and that's such an important point T and I definitely got that that's the message that I got from Levi's work as well like sort of like end on Levi's sort of contextualizing the last sort of six months and how what your sort of personal opinions are on what the, what this all means for the election next week and what might follow the election next week okay that's a great question and the degree to which democracy exists in the U.S., I think, is debatable under liberal capitalist state and its ongoing active colonial context. Having said that, though, um, we are in a situation in which Donald Trump has dog whistled and even very explicitly signaled this may not necessarily be a smooth transition. Uh, when it comes to this election, an anxious and heavily armed nation awaits. And so I'm not particularly good at prognosticating or forecasting what might end up happening. Um, but I do know, too, that um, folks who feel wounded or feel disenfranchised, whether that's legitimate or not, oftentimes react, not putting a lot of measured circumspect thought into the decisions that they're making, particularly when they're being emboldened by someone 
who's appealing to their sense of victimization, also identifying scapegoats as to why they're being victimized. The election that's uh, going to take place in early November, I'm not quite for sure what's going to happen. It seems like Joe Biden will end up being elected. And what I'm anticipating is Donald Trump basically mudding the waters, saying that the ballots that came in early are uh, illegitimate in some way, that there's been voter fraud. And so I'm wondering the manifestation of his resistance to, if he ends up not winning the election, if he ends up losing the election, what is his expression of resistance in terms of a transition from Trump and the Republican Party to Biden and the Democrats, which just sort of securing settler future? And it's basically, will he try to drag it out through the courts? Will it be more of him holding firm? Or will it be more about basically like an uh, entrenched, emboldened, I'm not going anywhere, blowing the dog whistle and sicking the dogs on people? Uh, as well as basically saying, okay, now is our moment. And the past six months, we've seen um, different protests. And so now it's our turn to protest. And I would say that the protest and manifestations uh, of resistance that have been taking place the past six months, primarily uh, from Black Lives Matter, have been legitimate. That's a statement as uh, I would like to associate with. But I think the assertions and statements that Donald Trump will make in terms of feeling wronged or as well as maybe appealing to his voter base that they've been wronged isn't necessarily legitimate. And then, too, that's where it's basically, I would say, sort of hyper-masculinist guys who get off on domination and have a track record of uh, arrogance and bloviating and trying to assert their dominance oftentimes don't go quietly. And I don't want to sound sort of like, oh, it's going to be violent. But I mean, settler colonial context in the United States has always been violent. And it's the degree to which it's explicit and immediate. And I, I'm not quite for sure. And I don't know what is in store based upon, is this going to be long drawn out and him just sort of being stubborn and not going anywhere and, and sort of mudding the water in the court system? Or will it be more basically like all bets are off? And let's sort of see if I can't signal to this heavily armed, anxious nation who feels a sense of victimization. And when he appeals to white nationalism, if that ends up creating flashpoint instances of violence, I, I'm not quite for sure. But it seems like that's not far out of the realm of possibility, either one of those scenarios. If Trump wins or if he loses, I think it will, he will draw upon the settler colonial mindset because he will reach back to the constitution that if the government's acting tyrannical, you have a right to remove them. You have the right to bear arms. They will reach back into the foundations of the United States, which people talk about all the time, even though they talk about it in abstraction most of the time. They will draw upon that well and they will act in that way. I guess a lot of people in the United States speak about the Constitution like it's a living, breathing document, the right to bear arms, all this kind of stuff, the, the threat to property. This has been a big thing when Black Lives Matter walks into private property. People are willing to, have to come to defend it with arms. Yeah. And going back to the 18th century document, like it's applicable to the 21st century living. This is what's going to happen. This settler colonial mindset will rear its head and it will be a madness in America. But I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're here. Not over there. On that hopeful note, um, um, no, it could be. Sorry, it could be a recourse to the Second Amendment, an appeal to ethno-nationalists and militias. With to me, there is hope, and it's basically the Black Lives Matter movement in particular is fighting for health care for all. 
that's going to help working class white folks who feel alienated. There's a lot of collective organizing. There's a lot of reason to basically say there is hope in it. Indigenous people have survived. They're engaging in resilience and survivance, breathing life into alternatives. You see different people coming across in solidarity, even though our struggles are incommensurate. And then too, what was, I think, also hopeful um, about this context is that hopefully it's a very vocal minority in terms of those who might want to bear arms in sort of a bizarre, potentially explosive and chaotic scenario. What's been also beneficial or kind of hope-inducing is effectively seeing hundreds of thousands of white people get on boards with Black Lives Matter or recognize Indigenous land claims, these sorts of things. In one sense, I'm not hopeful because basically... I mean, any election that it, uh, puts forward a candidate that gets elected into the U.S. government securing settler colonial futures. But then, too, there is more immediate as well as short term gains to be made. Maybe there is more uh, of a driving force behind galvanizing uh, a multiracial working class movement in which people are fighting for health care and uh, education for all. I mean, effectively, what we're dealing with, to call back to Fanon, and I like his his quote, the political education of the masses is a historical necessity. And at this point right now, the context that the, with what we call the United States of America is the result of, I would say, a state that's ensuring that the population isn't politically educated. And then, two, there are different movements. There are different collectives. There are different radical actors. There are different activists. There are different uh, aunties. There are different moms and dads and parents that are basically saying, our children, our kids, youth need to be politically educated. And back to what Tiso was talking about earlier, too, youth are oftentimes making those claims. So if you basically see or look for hope, it's basically like there are collectives and um, seemingly, it looks like maybe even critical mass emerging outside of the state apparatus that are basically saying we need to be politically educated, we need to fight for each other, As and even though our struggles are incommensurate, how do we lock arms and make sure that we are breathing life into sustainable, just, and healthful futures that are also defined by anti-racist politics, gender justice, and I would say they're also very much taking the task and recognizing that this is a context of structural white supremacy. So there is some hope in movements from below organizing and, and making demands. Oh, Levi, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, thank you for coming on this four-week journey with us. We'll obviously still be back with you every Tuesday for our usual Survive in Society episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to the T's and C's with T's and Chantel. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram.